So this morning, I just want to take you on a journey over the last week or so of my life in the Word. Um, So I was just reading my own reading schedule. I like to try to get through the entire book of the Bible each year. And this year, I'm, I'm trying to kind of get it done before summer, just because I'm enjoy- just loving doing big chunks of Scripture. There's something so good about slowing down and just studying a verse, and it's so good. And there's something so good about finishing off your 15th chapter in one sitting. And God just does something with that. You see how it fits together. It's kind of the difference between knowing what a chicken leg looks like and a chicken looks like. Do you know what I mean? It's like, put it together. Well, that's what a chicken... What's chicken look like? Well, it's that gross stuff underneath cellophane in the grocery store. No, it's a bird. And so that's the difference. And so I'm just kind of running through Joshua, which I don't always find to be the most... um, impactful book once you get past the second half of it. But I was reading through Joshua 17 here, and I came upon this, upon this really interesting story. If that map can come back, that would be really good. So what's happening in Joshua, they've invaded the land, and they've had a lot of significant victories, so much so that, that the scripture says God, God's fulfilled his promise to get Israel into the land. But they haven't quite completed the conquest. They haven't quite driven out all the other lands, and there's problems. And so the scripture says that God talks to Joshua when he's old, and he says, you're not quite done your process. You actually need to allot land for the tribes. So there's like 12 tribes that have gone in there, plus Levi that just get cities and not land. And nine of the the tribes don't actually have their borders determined yet. So they are going to do allotments and they're going to be rolling the, do- the bones and just kind of determining where the tribes are going to end up. And um, one tribe is the tribe of Joseph, which is actually two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. And if you want to read Genesis, um, Joseph was really blessed by the Lord and became the prince of Egypt. And when his father found out he was alive again and came to live with him in Egypt, he gave him a double blessing by, instead of having Joseph be a tribe of Israel, he adopted his two sons to each be their own tribe of Israel, thus giving Joseph a double blessing or double portion. And um, so these tribes have gotten their allotment, and then they come to Joseph. This is chapter 17, starting in verse 14, and they're, they're, they have a complaint. It says, then the people of Joseph, so that's Manasseh and Ephraim, which are people groups that are at least um, 100,000 people large each, roughly. It says, then the people of Joseph spoke to Joshua, saying, why have you given me but one lot and one portion as an inheritance, although I am a numerous people, since all along the Lord has blessed me? And Joshua said to them, if you are a numerous people, go up by yourselves to the forest and there clear ground for yourselves in the land of the parasites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. The people of Joseph said, the hill country is not enough for us. Yet all the Canaanites who dwell in the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Shean and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joseph said to the house Sorry. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are a numerous people and have great power. You shall not have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. 
For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. And I was just really struck. Every once in a while I have these moments where I feel like I've never read that before, even though I know I've read it probably a dozen times because, you know, just this habit of working through the Bible over and over and over again. I've read the thoughts, but I was like, I've never heard this story before. And it's just such an interesting story to me about these two tribes coming to complain to Joshua that he messed up the allotments and him saying, why don't you just go chop down some trees? And they say, well, the people who live near the trees have these chariots of iron. And Joshua says to them, you know what? Why don't you just go chop down the trees and chop down the chariots and go get the land you want? Like, this is really interesting because it's kind of this story about like leadership and dealing with the people of God and reasons why people don't want to do stuff and how sometimes everyone just knows the truth. It's easier to complain to the boss than it is to work hard to change things. And I was just thinking, but I said, man, that's not always the easiest thing to preach. And then um, that Sunday, when I was reading it, um, somebody came up here to start the Bible reading challenge and he was just sharing his own story about how he had this passion for the church to be reading the Bible and kept wondering why Rob didn't fix this problem, that the church wasn't reading the Bible more. Why didn't Rob do something about this? And then the Lord said to him, how about you do something about this? And he came and talked to me about it, and I said, yeah, you should do something about this. My contribution to this whole thing happening is this, one thumb, because God is with you. And you can do this. And I was like, this is the story for Sunday. This is the story for Sunday. What's going on here? To me, this is just this crazy, awesome, wonderful story about human nature. You have this tribe of Joseph, which is actually two tribes. And they're upset. Because as God has been allotting the land through Joshua... They don't like what they got. Hello? The portion that God gave them, they found fault with. And their fault is they're saying, like, we are a numerous people because the Lord has blessed us. Do you remember they said it? Look, there's so many of us. Each one of us is like an old school Mennonite family with like at least 12 kids each. I once met this lady at Smitty's. She's this great-grandma or grandma. She was going to be meeting uh, uh, one of her teenage offspring, and she said she had a hundred people had come out of her through children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A hundred. And, and this is what was going on there. You could meet ladies with a hundred descendants that came out of her, and they'd been blessed I think that Manasseh had over 50,000 fighting men at the last census, so that's just fighting men. That's just men who could wield a sword. That's not moms moms or grandmas or young kids. Over 50,000, so how many do you multiply that? If they've got large families, there could be 100,000, 200,000, just Manasseh, and then Ephraim had like 36,000 fighting men, and so how does the multiplication work there? We don't know. But this is like big-time peopleage. And they look at their allotment and they say, there's not enough room here. I know what we're going to do. Let's go tell Joshua, you blew it. Because human nature is sometimes, when things aren't the way you want, the first thing you do is ask, who do I blame? Right? 
somebody's messed up my life. I had a picture here of my allotment. It was going to both be mountainous and have a seaside resort. And it was going to be so huge that all of us could have a house and never see a neighbor because we're all on like 80 acres each. This was my dream. And then when we showed up, it was just like a rundown motel. We're all, all, all 300,000 of us just living in the North End. This wasn't what we imagined here. And so they're going to go fix it. They're going to go let Joshua know he's messed up. And they go to tell, talk to Joshua and they say, look, we are numerous people and God has blessed us, so give us another allotment. And what they wanted him to do was just go roll the bones again and then say, okay, whatever we were going to give to Judah. Look, Judah got a lot of land. Judah, we're just going to take half of that and give it to Manasseh or maybe some of Dan as well and blah, blah, blah. But we're just going to figure this out. Reroll. Like they wanted a mulligan. They wanted to re-roll the dice. You know, when you're playing Yahtzee and all you had left to get was the six sixes and you rolled six, five sixes and a five Reroll. They wanted a re-roll. But Joshua doesn't play. And so he says to them, yeah, there are an awful lot of you. Why don't you guys go chop down some trees on the hill country and just possess that? And, and they think about it. And I can, you almost can just imagine. They're thinking, they're thinking... And they don't say it, but each one of them in their heart, they're thinking, that sounds like work. (laughs) And so they come up with some reason for it not to happen, right? I have an ingrown toenail. I can't do this. I think I'm low in vitamin B12. They say, well, the hill country, even that isn't enough, they said. Though it does turn out to be. And, and, and also, all these Canaanites who live in these areas, the Canaanites, they have chariots of iron. Iron! So what's the deal there, okay? So the Israelites, when they did warfare, all they had was some swords and spears and maybe some clubs and slings. And God had actually told them, don't, don't try to keep up to pace with the military advancements of the nations. Don't get a bunch of horses. Don't try to get a bunch of chariots. I give you the victory, so don't even care. But they're looking at the chariots of iron. They say, I, we can't do that. There's chariots. And Joshua essentially says to them, look, you were just telling me a second ago that you're a super huge nation and that God has blessed you. You should just go fight these people with chariots. But they didn't want to because that meant war, and war is a risk. And so here is the the Ephraimites, here is the Manassites. They want more land, but they don't want the work, and they don't want the risk. They want more land, but all they can see is the trees and all they can see is the chariots. And so Joseph, or sorry, Joshua has to be the problem because they don't want to work and they don't want to risk. So Joshua has to be the problem. You don't understand, Joshua. You have to be the problem. Why? Because I don't like swinging an axe. So you have to be the problem. And as I've been reading this story, I'm just like, 
Joshua just amazes me here, where he's just kind of like, okay, I hear what you're saying. This one thing I disagree with you about is what God will do with you if you try. That's a, that's the difference. I hear what you're saying. There's a lot of trees. That's a lot of trees. That's a lot of trees. It takes a long time to cut down trees. Just look at British Columbia. They've been cutting down trees for decades. There's still a lot of trees there. It's a lot of work. Yeah, and, you know. and yeah, there's some chariots out there. Sure. They remind me a lot of those other chariots that we absolutely wiped out for the last few years as we were conquering the land. They look a lot like those chariots that God just, you know, destroyed before us. Like, remember those chariots that were parked inside of Jericho? that the walls fell on, that they never got to use that. It reminds me of those chariots. One thing we disagree about is what God will do with you if you just trust him and work and risk for the Lord. That's the big difference. And so I'm just like thinking to myself, where does this heart come from in Joshua? Amen? Where does this heart come from that stands before the leaders of hundreds of thousands of people and just says, okay, I hear what you're saying, but I, I think you should actually just put your eyes on the Lord and work and risk. All these people who would just come up to him like, you blew it, Joshua, you're ruining my life. And he's like, well, I'm not sure that's super true, but why don't you guys just work and risk and put your eyes on the Lord? Anyhow, so we're in this Bible reading challenge, calling, calling, challenge, a challenge to be called and a calling to be challenged. I do prefer calling just because a challenge might help somebody think that they're doing something for the Lord instead of helped by the Lord to do something. But that's just me being finicky, picky. And we're reading through this thing. And so um, I, was, I was reading scripture in John with somebody this last week and we were reading through John chapter 5 and we came to the end of it where Jesus is having this discussion with people like he's always doing in the gospel of John and he's just healed somebody at a pool and it caused a big fight and he's arguing with the Jewish people and he says this really interesting thing and I'm going to read it at the end of John and I'll start in verse 39 And he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And we were reading this and I just had this throwaway comment like, God doesn't receive glory from people. That's a weird thing for someone who receives worship from people all over the world to have said. Because I remember last Sunday, and I was just like, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. I worship you. Glory to Jesus. And I think he he received it. So what does it mean when Jesus is in front of people saying, I don't receive glory from people? Do you understand my hang-up on that? I don't receive glory from people. And we just kind of left it, but then the next day I was in my office, and And I was like, I want to think about this because it's bugging me. That the man God, the son Christ Jesus, 
while on the earth said, I don't receive glory from people. When I thought the whole reason I existed was to give Jesus glory, <laughs> to see his glory and praise his glory. So do you understand why you want to fix this sometimes? You start your car and a blood red smoke comes out of it. You don't ignore that. Right? You open the Bible and the object of your worship says, I don't receive glory from people. You, you don't ignore that. And so I'm thinking about this, and what I think Jesus is touching on here is that he's in Israel, and he sees that they have all these systems of giving glory to each other. All these relationships of praise and honor with each other. And he sees that they're completely trapped in this world of praising and honoring each other. Well, you want to be successful and you want high praise and you want, you got to listen to this person. This person's the person you got to worship and this person, the person you got to praise and this entertainer's the best one and that entertainer's the best one. And I'm on this system somewhere in this gradation of honor and I give honor to this person. This person gives a glory to me and I give glory to that person. And by glorifying that person, I actually receive glory because I'm admitting how glorious they are. And that's a glorious thing for me to do in the glory, 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 everything, everything, everything. And he's just seen a bunch of people squirming around for praise, honor, power, position, and caring about what other people think about them. And Jesus says, I reject that entire world. I and it starts with me not receiving glory from people. People come up to me and they're like, Oh, great teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the first thing Jesus starts with, what are you doing talking about calling me a great teacher or a good teacher? I don't receive your glory. You should be giving your glory to my father. And that was his entire life, an entire life of never receiving any honor or praise or anything that would even begin to get him into the system of manipulation, criticism, moving people around, putting people on pedestals, never once. Never once did it. And I was in my office, guys, I was in my office, and I'm just like, Jesus, you are my hero! You're my hero because you do not care what I think about you. You don't care about me in that way. And I can never manipulate you and never try to squish you and squeeze you. And even if I try to do that, you're like, what is your problem, Rob? I don't care what you think. Anybody ever been there? Ever had that revelation that Jesus does not give a rip about what you think? <laughs> you ever got that yet? Amen? I'm just like, yes, 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 yes. Because since Jesus does not give a rip about human glory and human praise and human manipulation, he is 100% free. He's just 100% free to do what will please his father. Amen? He's on the earth and he's like, I don't receive glory from any of you guys because all I care about is the glory of my Father. All I care about is pleasing my dad. All I care about is doing what he wants. And I am not going to prostitute my heart by giving a rip about what you guys think about me ever. Boom! 
I just like, Jesus, you're the best because he cares so little about Robert Balfour that he's only going to do what the Father wants towards me. It's amazing. This is why I know Jesus is going to be so faithful to me my whole life. Because the Father wants him to be faithful to me my whole life. Amen? Amen? This is how I know Jesus is going to complete the process. Because the Father sent him to complete the process. Amen? I, okay, I wasn't going to do it, but I'm going to do it now. I'm going to find this first. Okay. Jesus said to them, this is like the next chapter after he fed the 5,000, and all the crowds wanted to follow him, and they think that they are going to give him glory for feeding them. And he says, you guys aren't looking for me because you saw the signs and understood who I am. You just want more bread. You want to say, Jesus, you're wonderful. Give me the bread. Jesus, you're wonderful. Give me the bread. Free bread. I mean, sorry. Jesus, you're wonderful. Free bread. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I have said that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And these are my favorite verses. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. And I'm just thinking, Jesus does not care about any human being's opinions or praise or manipulation, so He is just going to do what His Father wants. He is just going to accomplish. You look at me in faith, I will do everything to raise you up on the last day. I'm not going to lose you because my Father's will is that I lose nothing that He's given to me. And listen to me, the devil and death and hell Hell will not stop the Son of God from doing the Father's will to His glory. There is nothing in the world that can keep Jesus from glorifying His Father by saving those God has given the Son to rescue. Because He doesn't give a rip about anybody else. In one sense. Except that the Father says, I want you to love these people even to death. And Jesus says, okay, I'll do it. I'll care about every second of Rob's life. I'll watch over him from before he's even born. I'll love him. I'll care for him. I'll work through all the little details and all the little oops accidents. I'll make sure he moves to the right place so he can meet the right people so that he can hear the gospel. I'll give him all the troubles he needs to want me. I'll give him all the breakthroughs he needs to know me. And I'll make sure everything happens so that he won't be lost. And I will love him. And I will love him. I will love him from when he wakes up to when he goes to bed. I'll watch Watch over him in love. I'll never even blink from watching him in faithfulness and love. Not for his sake, but for the glory of my Father. And look, I, I get it. I don't want Jesus to love me according to my own glory. I'll blow it. I'm not worthy of the love of God. But when Jesus says, I don't care about how you're doing, Rob. I'm going to love you for my father's worth. I'm just like, now I cannot lose this. Now I cannot lose the love of Jesus because he's doing it for the father's will. And he does not care what presidents think. He doesn't care what Olympians think. 
He doesn't care what Oscar winners think. Their opinions are nothing. Except for the will of his father. And he is free. Now, I think this is one of the reasons why people, number one, were so confused by Jesus all the time. They could not figure him out. Meeting with all these people this week, reading through John, and the one thing everyone had in common was they're like, Jesus doesn't make any sense. The one thing they all understood. <clears throat> people say one thing, Jesus responds in a way it doesn't make any sense. Jesus gets a crowd of people who look like they love him, then he sneaks away. And when they find him, he insults them. He doesn't make any sense. And the reason he didn't make any sense is because he's just like, I, I actually only care about seeking the glory of my Father in a world where nobody lives like that. Right. Jesus, you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to go up at the Passover to Jerusalem and do some signs and then take an offering. And then we're set for life. And he's like, I'm not going up. And when I do go up, I'm going to sneak up and then I'm going to wreck the festival by saying some stuff, and then I'm going to disappear. Because all he cared about was the glory of his Father. And you guys have been hearing me talk about the glory of God, and I'm just so hit by this, because it's like, I just want to live like this Jesus. Because I want the freedom of the Son of God. Guys, we don't understand what freedom means. When you hear freedom in the world, it's always get what you want and sleep with who you want. Every time. The cash you want and the sex you want. It's almost what, eh, freedom. Just do what you want. No, that's not freedom. Because even if you're doing what you want, you, you're stuck in this system of fallen glory exchange. You're stuck in the system of evaluating things like a dead person. The, the only real freedom is the freedom Jesus had where he could walk into a room and be like, I love all of you and I don't care about what any of you think. And I love all of you. And you can't do anything, think anything, feel anything, say anything to get me off of my mission to just please the Father. And I love you. And so go sell all your possessions and then follow me. Boom! This, 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 Jesus has this history of ruining people's lives because their lives weren't built on the glory of the Father. That's the issue. So Jesus says some tough stuff about this. You know, I was thinking about other verses, and in Luke, Jesus says something similar to this, but using different languages. It says, this is chapter 14, starting verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, right? Success. Messiah's success. The great crowds are following him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this is when people are hoping that you're paying the pastor to explain away the word of God instead of explaining the word of God. Let me just think, let me just press down on this for a bit. 
compared to Christ, do you hate your wife? Compared to Christ, do you hate your husband? Compared to Christ, do you hate your children? Are you worthy to be his disciple? He said this to the crowds. Have you learned to hate your life yet? So you can have the glory of God. It's tough for us in the West. If you're in China, you're in one of the major cities where the police are regularly looking for house groups to bust and pastors to throw in jail and torture, you get this. Oh, okay, if I follow Jesus, I'm probably going to lose everything. But you don't have to do that in the West. And so we don't do it. We don't, we don't practice hating our life. We don't look at the stuff we have and say, I, I just hate the fact that I could love this more than Jesus. We don't look at people and that we like have covenants with and go, you know what, there, there's nothing you could do to take me away from Christ. I, I am not going to disobey God even for one minute to make you happy. You don't have to fight about it, but that's the heart. And look, if you're a Christian like me, it's like, I do not want my wife to do one thing to displease God in order to make me happy. Be a Christian. Tell them that. Look, I have bad days, but, but don't you ever... Try to make me happy by sinning against Jesus. Amen? Amen. High five? High five. But just, just think, about what, think about these words. If you were in the crowd and you weren't just reading it in the Bible and Jesus got up in front of everybody and says, you have to hate everybody you're supposed to love in order to be my disciple. Or to say it another way, you have to be willing to reject every glory that anyone offers you in order to seek the glory of the Father. And this stuff is so serious. Like sometimes I just like, how can I be so dense against the words of Christ? He says in John, how can you believe if you give and receive glory amongst yourselves? He's not even saying you're going to blow it as a believer. He says, how can you even begin to believe in me if you live like this and aren't just seeking the glory that comes from the only God? He says, you look at me, you'll never see me. My whole life is just one loss to the next and then I go to the cross to die. My, I'm a king. I've got no castle. I'm a prophet. I've got no followers. I'm a priest, but I'm the sacrifice. I'm royalty, but I'm dirt poor. How can you love glory and even know me? How can you love human power and human positions and human praise and even see me? Let alone believe in me. The only way you can know me is if you take your heart and you take your mind and you give it to God and say, I only want to see your glory. I only want to love your glory. I only want to come into my days and into the end of my life hearing from you. I praise you. And this is the thing about the Father. You can hear this and think, man, the Father's a jerk. But because Jesus was in the world saying, I only care about your glory, Father, the Father was in the world going, I only care about giving you my glory, Son. I'm going to take this Galilean carpenter, I'm going to make him God of the world. I'm going to take his name and make it the most famous name forever, and I'm going to give you a people 
who are going to worship you forever. And I want you to receive their glory. And thus he does. I want you to receive their worship because I give it to you as your reward. And thus he does. I want you to take care of them. And thus he does. So this is the offer, church. Do you want the glory that comes from the only God? Are we living to see and bring glory to the only God? Back to Joshua. That's where we started. Let's get out of the New Testament. It's supposed to be the easier testament, that New Testament. But now we're going to find refuge in the Old Testament. Take a break. Head out to the law just for a break. How does Joshua, like literally, guys, let's think about this. Could you ever stand in front of 300,000 people who are telling you that you blew it and just not even change your mind for a second? Can you do that? Where you know it for at least 80,000 of them, they are the killing force with their swords and spears and slings. Would you be able to? This is the marvel of Joshua. This is what's getting me into this. How does he do it? It's not the tribe of Joshua where he had like 10,000 soldiers of his own. It's just one guy standing there going, I hear your complaints, but you're totally wrong, and I'm not going to flinch. Excuse me. Well, think about Joshua's life. He was the right-hand man of Moses. And the first time they were supposed to enter the promised land, he was one of the 12 spies that were sent in to spy out the land. When they came back, Joshua and Caleb gave a good report. The land is wonderful. God can do it. Let's go in. And 10 other spies said, there's giants. Giants who are as tall as trees. Giants that have chariots. We can't do this. It's a trap. God's blown it. What about our children? What about our wives? What about our cattle? Let's not go in. And because they wouldn't go in, God said, okay, this fighting generation that was supposed to go in is just going to, I'm going to bury them in the desert over the next 40 years. Joshua spent 40 years watching over 100,000 people have funerals. Each and every one buried in the desert with no gravestone, whose graves were lost because they didn't want to work and they didn't want to risk, and they didn't want to trust the promises of God, and they thought Moses was the problem. How old are you? How long is 40 years of your life? Funeral, 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 funeral. Funeral, 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 funeral. Didn't want to glorify God by trusting in his promises. Didn't want to glorify God by working to fulfill his promises. Didn't want to glorify God by risking whatever he needed to risk to trust God. Funeral, 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 funeral. And then Joshua did get to walk through a river that should have been flooding. 
and did watch God give them multiple, multiple victories. <clears throat> and so Joshua, who's, by the way, Jesus' name is Joshua, so this is the first Jesus. Jesus is the second Jesus. Joshua stands before them, a man like Jesus, who, who only wants to obey and have faith in his God. And so when he hears these people come up to him and they're not being operated on by faith, they're not coming up to him and saying, Joshua, we've got this plan to trust God, work hard and risk for him. He smells it a mile away and he doesn't want to participate. And he's standing there going, look, if I give in to you, you're, you're all dead. I've been here before. If I let you be motivated by your own glory and this world of like, we tell you what to do and when you've made a mistake and I get manipulated by you because I'm afraid of what you think, we're all dead. I, I buried all your parents. For this kind of stuff. And so he doesn't participate. Instead he calls them to faith. God has blessed you. You guys are a huge nation. And you have great might in the Lord. Work. <coughs> Risk. Trust. Win. Do you think we might be in a phase of life, Calvary Chapel, where we might get intimidated by a bunch of work? We might get afraid of a bunch of risk. And we might be tempted to be motivated by something other than just glorifying the Lord. The Lord. I think Joshua would stand before us and say, Calvary Chapel, God has blessed you. And you have great might in the Lord. Chop down some trees. Resist the enemy and win. And all God's people said, Amen. Why doesn't the team come up? I'll pray for us while they're doing it. Father, I, I'm, I'm so weak. And you know, apart from your steadying hand and the Holy Spirit, I can't go one day keeping my eyes on your glory. And Lord, where anybody just needs to repent, whether like big time, where they're just like, I, I haven't lived at all for your glory. Or just for something small that's come on our heart. God, would you give us grace? God, we're so afraid to admit that we're wrong in Canada. And we are so robbed of the grace of God because of it. God, you're so generous to us. You actually slayed your son to have us. It's an impossible thought. And then even on top of that, you took your own spirit, which is your inner being, and you put it inside of us as the mark that we are your children. God, there is nothing that this world could offer us that is greater than being a temple of the Spirit of God through the blood of Jesus. We are glorious. Father, I pray you'd help us to, to, to stop trading this away for something else. And instead, God, I pray you'd bring us into such a season 
of embracing the work of faith and embracing the risk of faith and leading us. Lord, we want to be led. I don't like any foolishness, but lead us by the Spirit. But God, may each one of us come to a place where we can say, I am motivated by trust and a desire to seek the glory that can only come from the true God.